abetwagp.net. Maybe now is the time to invest in your marriage. I thought I was doing everything that I could do. Family Life's Weekend to Remember. Immediate practical help for today. It touched on subjects we had not even talked about. And hope for tomorrow. It has really made all the difference in the world of how we treat each other. Family Life's Weekend to Remember. Coming to the Weston Hilton Head Island Resort, February 16th. Get away and do something great for your marriage. Visit WeekendToRemember.com. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. The Bible says to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you in this new year to the Bible line. So pleased that you can be with us for the next hour. If you are a first time listener, uh, what we do in this hour is we take people's questions as they have been studying God's word. Maybe there's an issue that comes up that they'd like clarity on or a particular issue in their life or an application of a scripture. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone again locally. It's 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, great to be here in 2018. And uh, and, and the snow has, has finally melted. Yes, it has. Uh, virtually gone. So <laughs> we're, we're thankful for that, too. And so we've got a first uh, caller, and uh, let's. Uh, they dictated their question. And they'd like to know the following. In James 519... They say, it is written, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. This person would like to know what will happen if a fellow Christian doesn't help another brother or sister in Christ who is straying. Will the one who doesn't help be punished by God for not helping? Well, it's a good question in terms of when do we get involved in other people's lives uh, and what is our responsibility as believers? Certainly, if you're a parent, You have a responsibility towards your children. And even, you know, sometimes like Eli, the priest should have uh, been responsible even for his adult children in terms of expressing a rebuke, which he did not. So that's certainly a first level. Uh, Sometimes within a fellowship of believers, uh, there will be someone who gets engaged in a kind of sin that warrants what the Bible calls church discipline. Obviously, we all sin, we all stumble in many ways, and not every sin warrants church discipline, but there are certain public reproaches like stealing or um, thievery, adultery, fornication, drunkenness, drug abuse, things like that that bring, you know, public disdain on the local assembly that the church should exercise 
discipline on. So if you become aware of an issue and you do not feel like you can handle it yourself, then the best thing at that point is to go to an elder in the church. But if you uh, feel like, no, this is something that I can um, approach the person on, then do so. And you go to your brethren in private. And if he doesn't listen to you, then you take two or three. And probably at that level, there should be an elder or a deacon or whatever the polity of your local assembly might be. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 6, 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual. And the word here for spiritual speaks of a certain maturity in Christ. Uh, much like in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul divides the world into three groups of people. Uh, you can take really the whole planet and put them into one of three categories. As Paul does here, uh, he says, for to us, meaning the church, the body of Christ, God revealed them, meaning the truth he just described to us through the spirit for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And then he will say, but a natural man in second, first Corinthians two fourteen, and a natural man biblically defined is a person without the Holy spirit. It's the way we come into this world. We are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. Uh, Jude says they are merely natural or without the spirit in his short little one chapter book. A natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. So that's one category, the lost. Uh, he will give a third category in chapter three. I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, um, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And he says that in deference to what he said in 1 Corinthians 2.15, he who is spiritual appraises all things. So a spiritual man is a grown-up Christian, not anyone who has arrived because we won't arrive until we're translated into heaven, either by death or by rapture. Uh, but a spiritual man is a person who has a grown-up relationship with the Lord and a growing relationship. None of us ever reached the point where we don't need to grow any further. But there is a line by which God assumes that we uh, can be considered a spiritual person. In fact, when he writes this book to them, he first says, I, brethren, could not, past tense, speak to you as to spiritual men, as to grown-up Christians, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you, again, past tense, milk to drink. Milk is used in two ways in the New Testament. It's used of the purity of God's word. Like in first Peter, he tells us like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow. So there it's not talking about, you know, simplicity of truth. It's just talking about the purity of God's word as spiritual food. But here another usage of the word and words find their meaning in context. Very often he's describing milk in terms of something very simple. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food for you are not yet able to receive it. What is he referring to? He's referring to four years earlier when he came to the Corinth, to the city of Corinth and planted this church. Paul started the church in Corinth, according to the book of Acts. He preached the gospel. And so as new Christians, he didn't start with the meat of the word. He just started with simple truth. We do that at Community Bible Church. We have a course called the Discovery Class. It's 45 weeks long. And we're teaching people sound basic doctrines so they can grow. Unfortunately, very often people aren't given that opportunity when they come to Christ. 
And if someone doesn't take advantage of it in our church, it's not our fault. It's their fault. But um, it's essential to maturity. And if Dr. Billy Graham is right, who's 99 years old, and a lot of people today don't even know who he is, but he's probably one of the greatest evangelists in the history of Christianity. Uh, But if he's correct, he said 90 to 95 percent of the genuine, we're not talking about nominal, but genuine born again Christians have stayed babies in Christ. And sometimes because they haven't even been given the milk that they need, they've been given the plan of salvation to bring them into the kingdom, but they haven't been given the essential bedrock foundational truths to grow. So I gave you past tense milk to drink, not solid food. Here's the problem. Indeed, he changes tenses. Even now you're not yet able. So it takes time to grow. Four years had transpired and Paul assumed by that time they were spiritual. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews again uh, underscores the same principle for by this time you and it's you plural ought to be teachers. You have yet you have need of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Enough time had gone by where they should have been able to answer basic questions. Not everyone has the gift of teaching. Certainly not everyone is called to serve in the office of teaching. As James refers, let not many of you become teachers. But in the broad sense, every Christian should be a teacher in that he is able to answer he or she basic, simple truths concerning the Christian faith. That's a spiritual man. And so getting back to the uh, text that I started with in Galatians, not everyone should necessarily be involved in church discipline. Sometimes because of where they are in their walk with the Lord, they should alert their pastor and let it begin with him. Brethren, if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual. So he's talking about a certain maturity. Restore such a, uh, such a one. Restore this brother, this sister, in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If you go with an attitude of arrogance, like, man, what's your problem? And why are you doing this? And, and you don't go with a spirit of humility, recognizing that by the grace of God, there go I, then you're really tempting the devil to tempt you. And so a spiritual man, his goal is to restore. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he doesn't listen, you bring it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then he's excommunicated. And this is important. That's not hateful. The purpose of excommunication, even from a local assembly, is restoration. That's the goal. It's hopefully by the mercy of God to, for them to wake up. Because what happens when a church officially excommunicates one of its members? Well, if the person is a genuine believer, then they are opened up to a new level of church discipline. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says it's actually reported. The word report is kaleo. It's broadcasted. You could render it. It's well known. In other words, this is not some hidden thing that only a few people in the church know about. The whole church knows about it. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Here are the word Gentiles being used among the pagans, not just a non-Jew. Uh, that someone has his father's wife. He's saying, look, even the pagans, even the Gentiles find it disgusting that someone would sleep with his stepmother. And you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who's done this deed would be removed from your midst. So for I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, 
have already judged one. You, you haven't done it, but I'm going to do it. I can't physically be there to do it, but I'm going to do it in my spirit. I'm going to give him over in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So when a person is officially removed from the local assembly's membership, then that person comes under a new uh, form of spiritual oppression by the evil one. And again, God does this to bring about repentance. And as it turns out, as you read second Corinthians, this man ended up repenting. And so God used his excommunication and the discipline that came with it. You know, the devil is God's devil, Luther used to say, and that's true. And so Satan is limited in what he can and cannot do, but God gives him permission to do more when someone is removed from the protective umbrella of a local assembly. And this is one of the functions of membership. You know, if you're listening to me today and you're not a member of a local assembly, and it's not just because you're between churches and you've just moved here, but you just don't care to be a member. That's not wise. It's not wise for you spiritually. And it's certainly uh, a form of disobedience anyway. So yes, uh, Church discipline is important and we play a role. You've got to do some self-evaluation, but if you're aware of something and you say nothing, what, what is there some expression? If you see something, say it or, um, and so that that's true, you know, it, not only in dealing with terrorism, it's also true in dealing with sin in the church. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And um, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. Checking our, uh, I seem to have closed our our screen out here for a second. So the email is a great resource. And so um, sometimes people email even while they're at work and they know the Bible line's on and they have a question and they can't necessarily even have the radio on. But when your question is answered, then you are emailed back to say, hey, your question was answered. And so a lot of people go to searchthescriptures.org, and there's a number of drop-down menus, and one is ask Dr. Brogy a question. And Rick takes those questions, and he presents them here on the Bible line. And then, um, look, I get so many questions, I, I can't answer them all. I, but I try to answer as many as I can, and I try to weigh them in terms of priority And sometimes I'll have people who just keep sending questions and I appreciate their teachability, but sometimes we'll write them back and say, you know, you've asked five questions in the last month. And, um, you know, if you don't mind holding off for a while, because we're getting so many that we want to give some people an opportunity to at least have their one question answered. But I think you've got it back up here. We have some from Andrew, North Carolina, who's uh, dictated a question. So let's go with them. All right. Uh, the Ray from Andrew would like you to comment on the following. I received the following information, he writes, which gives a reason for some verses having been left out of the newer Bible translations. For example, Acts 9 verse 5, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And it's not in the NASB, Acts 9 5. Also note that the phrase in Acts 26 14 of the NASB, question, why are the newer translations of the Bible missing verses? And this person had answered, if you compare the King James and New King James versions with the newer translations, i.e. the New International Version, New American Standard, so on, why do these translations not have certain verses? Are the newer translations taking verses out of the Bible? I've heard it said the NAS, which you preach from, Dr. Brogy, takes the verses on hell and the verses on Christ's blood out of the Bible. 
The common response that I hear is that the translators did not believe certain verses should have been in the Bible to begin with, since the King James Version was translated in A.D. 1611. Many biblical manuscripts have been discovered that are older and more accurate than the manuscripts the KJV was based on. When Bible scholars researched through these manuscripts, they discovered some differences. It seems that over the course of 1,500 years, some words, phrases, even sentences were added to the Bible, either intentionally or accidentally. The verses mentioned above are simply not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. So the newer translations remove these verses or place them in footnotes or in the margin because they don't truly belong in the Bible. It's important to remember, however, that the verses in question are of minor significance. None of them change in any way the crucial themes of the Bible, nor do they have any impact on the Bible's doctrines, Jesus' death, burial, uh, and resurrection. Christ as the only way of salvation, heaven and hell, sin and redemption, and the nature and character of God. These are preserved intact through the work of the Holy Spirit who safeguards the Word of God for all generations. All right. So it's a good question. It's a fair question. And I have a course that I teach in our Institute of Biblical Studies, which if that's a new term to you, uh, I've put together a curriculum. It's uh, 33 hours. There's only one course that I lack in terms of teaching, uh, and it's the Old Testament survey course. But all the other courses have been taught and have been offered. And occasionally we'll go back and maybe update one and make the notes a little more expansive than they originally appeared. But for instance, the course on bibliology has over 500 pages of notes and people can download the various messages and uh, take it for course credit. Now, some people don't take it for course credit, but just for personal edification, you're basically getting a certificate um, equivalent to 33 hours of master level seminary training. And so one of the subjects that we cover is bibliology. And I think it's section six where I do an evaluation of the various English translations and how we got our English Bible. And we are certainly blessed, those who speak the English tongue, uh, because of the wide variety of translations that are available to us. And there are certainly uh, different translation approaches, uh, literalness, uh, readability, and there are different levels on that spectrum. On one side, you have literalness, where if you just literally translated the Greek text, say, into English, it would make a lot of sense to us. Why? Because like in English, the way our language is structured, it's typically subject, verb, object. Uh, in Greek, the very first word of a sentence can be a verb. And that doesn't always make sense to us. But if you wanted to get a feel for what a literal translation, you could get an interlinear translation of the Bible. And, and then, too, you know, like I said, let's say I said um, that is the, the car of, of Rick uh, in English. That's, that's the car of Rick. Well, we don't usually say it that way. We'd say that's Rick's car. Uh, but in Greek, it would read that's the car of Rick. Um, it's possessive and, and it really underscores, you know, the nature of a word in terms of how it should be classified. And it's very helpful sometimes, obviously, to, to read the original language. But lay that aside. So there's one issue there that's translation philosophy. And so some put uh, readability over literalness. There has to be a readability in every translation as you work from an original language to a receptor language. That's true in any translation process, even in our day. Uh, but with that said, sometimes literalness needs to uh, triumph over readability. 
Uh, some translations are total paraphrases. And if you paraphrase a book of the Bible, then you are basically writing a commentary. It's not that you wouldn't get the maybe the essence, but not always. Uh, like there's a terrible, absolutely horrible paraphrase that was done by a guy named Eugene Peterson called The Message. It's terrible. And I quoted from it once or twice because I thought, oh, Nav Press, so this is the new paraphrase. And, and I quoted for it um, and said, you know, this is what the, the message said. And then I actually got a copy of the message and started reading it and said, I'll never quote from that again. Uh, Eugene Peterson was not the scholar that people made him out to be, but Navigators, which, you know, was typically a trustworthy organization, um, you know, made a lot of money off of the message, millions of dollars. And so, unfortunately, I don't think they're going to get rid of it anytime soon. But it's terrible. Like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, if you read the message, uh, he leaves out homosexuality. That's convenient. Why does he leave out the sin of homosexuality? It's in every manuscript, whatever century the manuscript was written in or copied in. Uh, But he took a lot of liberty, and I think wrongly so. Um, But with that said, there are some issues over the nature of various manuscripts. So the King James, obviously done in the 16th century, used all of the manuscripts that were available to them. And if you read the preface to the King James Version of the Bible, you will find it in a 1611 copy. They don't put it in the newer editions. But when the 400th year of the King James Bible came, which was in, you know, uh, 2011, they had a 400th year edition where you could buy a 1611 copy, so to speak. And the only difference was, is they changed the lettering because the letters in the English language changed. For instance, the letter uh, S looked more like the letter F in uh, in the 16th century. So they, they used the updated Latin characters, but they kept it the way it was in 1611. But if you read in the preface, they tell you right off, hey, listen, you know, we are, we're limited in our ability to uh, translate the Bible into God's tongue, uh, English tongue, and um, we are sure that there will be refinements that will be made in later editions. And there was, in fact, most people, you know, you've got some King James only people and they say, I believe in the 1611 King James Bible. Most of them, number one, couldn't even read it if they wanted to, unless they're, you know, well-schooled in middle English. But then I'll ask them, well, are you reading the 1611A or 1611B? Well, what do you mean? Uh, well, in 1611, they put the first translation out and then they went right back to the drawing board. And later that year, they did the 1611 B, which was an updated edition because again, you know, here was a challenge and the blessing of the Protestant reformation is in a wider scale way. Um, it encouraged men and women, uh, to go back and learn the original languages. A lot of people didn't know the original languages. And so they were uncertain on the meanings of certain words and they interfaced with, you know, Jewish rabbis and, and other things, not to mention, like, for instance, in the King James Version, there was a portion of, of Revelation 22 that they didn't even have a Greek manuscript for. And so they actually took the Latin manuscript and translated that section from Latin into English. So you've got issues like that going on. But here's the challenge is we have a hundred and one percent of the Bible. And so what we're asking as 
uh, translators is what is the original 100%. When you owned a piece of paper or a piece of parchment in the first century, uh, that was very expensive. Most people didn't have their own copy of the Bible. It was just too expensive. Parchment was very, very expensive. And that's why it was very important when Paul says, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. Because for a lot of people, that's all they would get. And they might go to the local assembly and there was a copy of the scriptures and people would then go and copy a copy. And then maybe if I copied a copy and say, hey, look, I, I copied Revelation chapter one today. Oh, you did. Can I copy it? And someone else made a copy of that. And if you look in my Bible, you'll find some notes and some commentary or some things that God taught me with. Or, or maybe I'll have a Greek word or a Hebrew word out in the margin and uh, for clarification in my own thinking. And what happened with time is that sometimes scribal notes were being copied. It's not like we have today. We're out in the margin of the Bible or between verses because there's enough space that you can write something. In fact, if you look at ancient manuscripts, they're just solid from end to end. There's not even spaces between the words. Your mind had to um, supply that space. And so um, sometimes people create a straw man between the King James first in reference to the Acts passage that you first asked concerning about kicking against the goads. Um, that is found in Acts 22. It is true that in Acts 9, it's not there in some of the older manuscripts. And so the argument is, is that the older manuscripts were closer to the original and therefore the most reliable without any scribal additions or notes. So sometimes the scribal additions or notes were copied. And because of that, they were not included in later translations of the Bible. Look, there were some things in the King James manuscripts that they used, the Texas Receptus, that they did not include in the King James version of the Bible. Why? Because it was clearly a scribal note and there was no debate over that. So, um, so for instance, when you come to the book of Colossians, you know, you mentioned, oh, all the blood verses are taken out of the Bible. That's a straw man that you're not saying maybe yourself personally, but you've heard that said. It says in Colossians 1.14, in whom, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, and there's um, no mention there of the blood of Jesus Christ. The King James says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, to say that the blood is taken out of the newer editions is unfair because just a few verses later, um, he will mention that we have redemption through the blood of his cross. So look, just a handful of verses later, there it is. Not to mention in the parallel text, uh, which would be Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. Uh, let me just turn over there for a moment. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So it's the same verse. So if you were a scribe and you copied, maybe in your mind you put what you knew so well in Ephesians 1, which, um, and you added in your own copy uh, through his blood. Uh, and that copy got copied, and so there was a family of manuscripts with that addition. But take the blood verses, for instance. When you hear someone say, all the new translations take out all the blood verses. Well, actually, the word blood is found 98 times in the King James Version, and it is found 97 times in all the other verses, uh, in all the other versions of the Bible. 
So there's one verse that we're debating over. A few verses later, the blood is mentioned, and it's found in the parallel text. So it changes nothing, and it's a silly argument. Or the other issue that you raise is all the verses on, on hell have been taken out of the Bible. Well, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about one verse over in Mark chapter 9, actually two verses in Mark 9, but one phrase. So let me just turn there for a second. Jesus is dealing with the doctrine of uh, eternal retribution, and he's making it very clear. Uh, Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, you know, cut it off and so on. And then in verse 44, he says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And in the um, NIV, it's a footnote. In the NAS, it's uh, in brackets. Now, when the NAS puts something in brackets, their argument is, though this is not in the older manuscripts, uh, we think it should be included. That was what the original translation team of the New American Standard thought. Uh, again, verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, verse 46, NIV, ESV, footnoted, uh, but in the NASB, it's in brackets. However, a third time, he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, uh, throw it out. And then verse 48, not in brackets, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So there it is, plainly, clearly, the same exact wording in the same paragraph of scripture found in verse 48, bracketed in verses 44 and 46. Oh, so all the verses in the Bible of hell, actually every single verse on divine retribution, with the exception of these two, they're in brackets in the ANAS, they're in every translation in verse uh, 48 of Mark chapter nine. All the rest of the verses are there concerning the doctrine of eternal retribution. It's, it's a silly argument. Look, if you want me to play that game, I could do it too with the King James, but oh, they, they only play it in one direction. For instance, in the book of Jude, verse 25, he's, well, verse 24, to give you the flow now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know that the phrase through Jesus Christ, our Lord is not in the King James version of the Bible, though it's in all the oldest manuscripts, but it's not in the King James. Oh, well, the King James, they're throwing out all the verses on the deity of Jesus. You know, they're a bunch of heretics. No, 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 no. King James is a marvelous translation of the Bible, and I would never undermine in anyone's thinking. We're talking about a total of about 40 lines of English type that are in debate and they change nothing as this uh, caller said doctrinally or anything else. But uh, it's, a, it's just kind of a silly argument and it's almost a pharisaical argument that some people make. Anyway, I've spent enough time on that, but if you want to really study that in detail, go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, take the course on bibliology, or if you want, just listen to section six, where I do a total evaluation of all the English translations. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning, um, Carl and Rick. This is Kathy. Um, I, I called in with um, some questions uh, just throughout the last couple of years or so, and I've really, I've been studying um, eschatology, um, the different views, <clears throat> and I, I've been taught dispensational premillennialism my whole life, um, since I was nine, when I, I became a believer, and 
I didn't really look into the other views. Um, <clears throat> when I would hear different things, they were whenever I heard different things about the other views, they were um, presented in such a way that I just thought, oh, well, they're they're crazy and that doesn't make sense. So I never looked into it, but I've been really looking into it lately. And um, I've, I've got to tell you, I've got some questions that I cannot seem to get answered. And there's um, a couple of main ones, but I don't have time to, of course, ask them all. But one of, one of my main ones is if, if there is a return at any time in the future to the Old Testament sacrificial system, I, I cannot um, get past the fact that this is, is an insult to the blood of Christ and the whole New Testament, Hebrews, all, you know, Paul made it real clear, do not. I mean, Jesus' blood made those sacrifices obsolete. And then and as I further have discovered, the verses that are used by dispensational premillennialists say for atonement. And yet they um, also wear the badge very proudly of taking the Bible literally, but for atonement seems to be changed for um, to mean as a memorial. And I just don't see how there's a change for Jews, the New Testament Jews, the disciples, the apostles, why we would not use, you know, do that now as a memorial, so to speak, but yet they would in the future. And so, so many things with the meaning of in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, that there, you know, is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, but yet there will be in the future, um, apparently, which is also um, an insult, in my opinion, to the blood of Christ. Um, so, I, I'm All right, really I, I, get, I get the gist of it. I, yep. I, all right, fair enough. Let me see if I can respond. And so, first of all, let me just say in terms of the future millennial temple, of Christ, dispensationalists are not united in terms of how to understand those verses of Scripture. So we don't want to broad brush all dispensationalists, and the word dispensationalists can mean a lot of things in a lot of realms of theology. Some people have five dispensations, some have seven. But bottom line, what a dispensationalist teaches, it's a word that comes from the Greek New Testament. Uh, is that he makes a distinction between Israel and the church. So this is really, really very, very important. Is there a future for Israel? That's the bottom line of dispensationalism. Uh, We can deal with side issues, the millennial temple, and what its purpose is and its meaning, but that's not central to dispensational thought. And even amongst dispensationalists, some differ in reference to that. I do believe there'll be a future millennial temple. Uh, that will be in place and that God will use it not to atone for sins. And I don't believe the text is teaching that because the blood of Christ is a once and for all sacrifice. But understand that during the time of the thousand year reign of Christ, something that all millennialists totally ignore and don't even believe in. And again, you've got to go back. What's the source of all millennial theology? Well, it's Roman Catholicism. What's the source of Roman Catholicism's uh, millennial theology? St. Augustine. What's the source of his theology? Origin. And so Origen, when he came to uh, the uh, futuristic passages in the Bible, spiritualized them. He applied a different hermeneutic. And if you've studied church history much, then that's not a debated point. That was one of his key critical 
um, realms of interpretation that he was known for. And of course, I could understand maybe why he felt pressured to respond in that way, because he's living at a time where you don't speak of a future kingdom and a future king ruling on the earth if you uh, valued your head. And so uh, if you didn't want to be executed, then when you came to the uh, passages in the word of God that dealt with a future king ruling on the earth, then indeed you would be tempted to spiritualize them. And I think that's what drove his theology. Augustine, and I'm embarrassed over what he taught, you know, in reference to the Jewish people. And it's an embarrassment when you go into Yad Vashem or the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and you read the quotations by Origen or by Martin Luther or by John Calvin or by St. Augustine. It's just an embarrassment. They're they're anti-Semitic in nature and we can soften them. But listen, John Calvin was distorted in some realms of his theology. He thought, like Catholics, that the church had replaced Israel. He put a different spin on it to his credit and that he didn't define the church the way the Roman church defined it as a baptized member by a Roman Catholic priest making you a member of the church. Um, He put an entirely different spin on it and he said, no, the the church is the body of Christ and it's made up of born again believers. But he kept the same theology that the church had replaced the nation of Israel. And you got guys like John Piper and Alistair Begg and others like that today. And I'm thankful they have the gospel, but they have a distorted view in their eschatology. Um, And so Calvin thought that because the church, for instance, was the new Israel, that when he sets up uh, his local assembly in Geneva, he runs it like a theocracy. And so when he finds a man who in his view, errs in theology, Michael Saveltis, he wants him burned at the stake. And he said, make sure there's plenty of the green wood to make it last. That's John Calvin. Um, he did some things that are an embarrassment to the Christian faith. And yet some people quote him like he's, you know, the Protestant Pope and that we should believe everything that he said. Um, he had a weird eschatology. I have all of Calvin's commentaries. He wrote one in every book of the Bible except Revelation. He did not write one on Revelation. So, of course, if God is done with Israel, then when you come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, the subject is not so much Israel. The subject is the church. and Who's the new Israel? And he spiritualizes those passages. And so it's not God electing Israel in chapter 9. But when I go through, I think I preached six sermons on Romans 9, and I went back through all the Old Testament quotations and looked at them in their original context and see how Paul then quotes them, and it gives it an entirely different spin than Calvin did in his commentaries. And so, no, God is not done with the Jewish people. He used the Jewish people to bring about the first coming of Christ, and he's going to use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming of Christ. So I wouldn't get hung up just on the millennial reign of Christ in terms of the millennial temple, but you really have to write away a lot of truth and spiritualize a lot of truth um, when it comes to end times prophecy. And again, some people say, well, dispensationalism is new. It's not new. I I can go back and quote people in the second century, some early church fathers who believed that God was not done with Israel. 
and the fact that God recognizes in the holy city both Gentiles and Jews is not saying that one is better than the other. God is not a respecter of persons. So people create these straw men over what dispensationalists believe. And it is true that there were some dispensationalists who, um, you know, held some things that most dispensationalists today do not hold to. Um, and they were exploring the realm of eschatology. Why? Because it was a subject of theology that was basically neglected. Most of the Protestant reformers were just dealing with a, the authority of the Bible B, the priesthood of the believer, and C, the doctrine of soteriology, how is a man saved? And very few of them even address the subject of uh, eschatology. And so their ecclesiology, their doctrine of the church, affected their eschatology. And so, you know, Calvin baptized infants. He called it a sacrament. Luther said that you were born again in the waters of baptism. That's not true. Um, now, I understand where he was coming from, and that may sound heretical to someone. How could Luther teach that and still be acclaimed as one of the great Protestant leaders of justification by grace alone through faith alone? Well, he taught that in the waters of baptism that uh, a person was given prevenient pre-salvation grace, since there's none who seeks God, no, not one, that God had to take the initiative, and he did it through baptism. So he called it a sacrament. Luther was wrong. It's not a sacrament. It doesn't instill some kind of special form of grace, you know, to the soul, to an infant so that they can later believe. Now, Luther, to his credit, would take, you know, the verse in Romans where Paul speaks of circumcision and he would substitute the word uh, baptism for it. And he said he was uh, he who is physically uncircumcised. Uh, if he keeps the whole law, will not he judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcised our transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is his circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And so in this whole argument where he says your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if he, the uncircumcised man, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he substituted the word baptism in there. And so in fairness to Luther, he said, look, if a person received this sacramental prevenient grace in infant baptism and later did not confess Jesus as Lord, then his baptism has become unbaptism. But again, he, he's, he's carrying to the scripture a set of lenses that, um, you know, I think we're wrong. He's influenced by his own generation and by the church that he grew out of. But remember, apart from the Protestant reformers, you know, they're the ones who get all the press. I think we probably would do the body of Christ a great favor if we studied more the groups that were never a part of the Roman Catholic Church, like the Waldesians. They were never a part of the Roman Catholic Church. But we don't talk about people like that much, but they were, you know, local assemblies of believers who were not a part of the institutionalized church. Now, again, I'm not diminishing what the Protestant reformers did. I'm grateful for what they did. We celebrated the uh, Reformation this year in terms of the anniversary of it, and uh, it was a very important, you know, landmark year. But lay that aside, the fact is, is that you know, the Protestant Reformation dealt with one segment of people who are all in Catholicism and they leave it. But God has always had his church 
and always had his people in people who were not a part of the Roman Catholic Church. So what happened in the uh, 19th century in evangelicalism is a lot of people began to study eschatology. And it was an ignored subject for, for centuries. And so some people were trying to put things together and understand it. And I understand that. And maybe some made some statements that were not entirely accurate. But nonetheless, they had the basics down that God was not done with Israel. And that was laughable. That was laughable even in the early part of the 20th century, that God was not done with Israel. When Harry Ironside, the great preacher of Moody Church in Chicago, or Lewis Perry Chafer and others like them, preached that God was not done with Israel, and they were preaching that in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, uh, they were laughed at. They said, you guys are weird, you know? I mean, Israel's not been a nation formally since 70 AD, and it was illegal since the Bar Kogh Rebellion for Jews to even live in Israel uh, at one point. And so Bar Kogh Rebellion, and so you guys are just weird. You're just stupid. And God's, God's done with Israel. We're the new Israel. Then Israel becomes a nation, and one day they're born a nation. I mean, what, what fed, what fed, the uh, Holocaust in Europe. I'll tell you what fed it. It was the silence of the churches. And Hitler had his men go into the Lutheran churches in Germany to read the writings of Martin Luther and some of the terrible, heinous, awful things he said about the Jewish people. And he used that as a justification to fire up the German people to help exterminate the Jews. It was the silence of the pulpits in Germany that helped feed and make the way for the Holocaust. And look, it's happening again. And I think we're crossing a new line. And look, we just saw recently what the United Nations did, and with the exception of a handful of countries, all the countries of the world were going against Israel. This is exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. So what I recommend you do, if you really want to study both sides of it, uh, read the book called Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. A great biblical name, Pentecost, one of my professors in seminary. It was his THD dissertation, still a classic work. Uh, Or you could take my course on eschatology. You know, some people ask me questions and I say, look, why why, why don't you just come to Wednesday nights? We cover these issues in depth and we look at both sides of them. And some people just blow off a lot of the services we have. And I don't know. I don't know who this Kathy is. It's calling. I couldn't recognize her voice. But in either case, um, we we've taught on these issues and taught them in depth and they're important. Anyway, let's go to the next question. Very good. A caller would like to add an answer about Paul. Was he actually converted on the road to Damascus? Also, some dispute that Saul would have been sent so far away to Damascus to arrest Christian Jews. Do you have a message that would explain this? Yes. Go to my Acts series and uh, listen to two messages, one in Acts 9 and one in Acts 22. So I deal with these very questions in depth, good question. So yes, he was converted on the Damascus road, but go ahead and listen to those messages and I deal with all the nuances. All right. Marty from Savannah would like to know what confession or confessions of faith uh, would you use and why would you use the following? And if not, why would you not want to use the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger catechism and the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith? In other words, which confessions of faith should we not use as a person who is not a Calvinist or hyper-Calvinist, being more of what you call a Calminian? Well, we could do an analysis of each of these confessions, but take, for instance, the more popular one, the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
I think it's Article 23, but don't quote me on that. But one of the articles in there, it says the Pope is the Antichrist. Well, what do they mean by that? They're referring actually to the Pope in their day because they took what was called a historical interpretation of the book of Revelation. So they saw the book of Revelation unfolding in the history of the church. And they thought that the Pope that was alive in their day was literally the Antichrist. I think they were wrong. In fact, uh, they've been proven wrong, obviously. We have hindsight to prove that and demonstrate that. But the Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, has things in it that uh, represent a lot of ways a minority view. And when you speak with missiologists, uh, less than 10% of evangelical Christians baptize infants, less than 10%. Some would put it at 5%. The simple reading of scripture is post-conversion baptism. That's not a Baptist doctrine. That's a biblical doctrine. Infant baptism has always been a minority view amongst evangelicals. Now, it hasn't been a minority view amongst, say, Roman Catholics, who, you know, we would not consider to be evangelical Christians. There are obviously exceptions to the rule. There are born-again Roman Catholics. But in terms of evangelical theology, in terms of the solas of the Reformation, in terms of how a man is saved, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent, reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, denies the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. So we would not classify them as evangelicals, as born-again Christians, doctrinally. Again, there is exceptions to the rule. I had a Jesuit priest who is definitely a born-again evangelical at Boston College. I studied under the Jesuits at BC. They are the teaching order of the Roman Catholic Church. And the largest community of Jesuits in the world are at Boston College. And so I'm sure God had his hand on letting me go to that school so that I could study under them and really not just uh, understand what people say about the Catholic Church, because there's a lot of straw men that are, uh, you know, created concerning Catholics that just aren't true. Well, Catholics say, you know, you can sit all week and then you just go to confession on Saturday and everything's good. They don't teach that. That's a straw man. Um, but what do they actually teach? And so I was blessed to be able to study under those and men and to go to their original documents and, and see exactly what the church actually affirmed and what the church actually taught. So anyway, it's a, it's a good question that you ask. We could spend a lot more time on it, but they're piling up. So let's go to the next question. All right. I think we've got time for one more. Uh, this person would like to know, are most people that are raised in a cult bubble going to hell? And why doesn't God seem to do more to make the truth known uh, so many are not deceived? Oh, I should say that in reference to Marty's question, do I recommend one? Well, you know, like there are broad doctrinal statements like the Baptist faith and message. That's a broad doctrinal statement that most evangelical Christians around the world ascribe to. Uh, it doesn't take uh, a position on some issues that maybe are, you know, issues within a broader doctrine, but that's a broad doctrinal statement that most evangelicals around the world represent. Um, so that would be one example. Okay, are cults in a hell bubble, so to speak? No, not necessarily. People are in a cult for one of two reasons. Either A, the cult was the first one to reach them. And so they were looking, they were searching. And listen, one of the great, great um, sad stories of our day is that most Christians don't share their faith. You know, I'm offering a course starting tomorrow night, Wednesday, for the next five Wednesday nights on witnessing without fear. And I've told some of our people, look, if you haven't led anyone to Christ in the last, you know, two years, you should come. 
uh, maybe what you're doing is not working. And do, do I think that God wants to use people to bring other folks into the kingdom? Yes, that's what he's about. You know, I had a man not long ago in the last year, he came to me and he's in his fifties and he said, I've been a Christian for 28 years. I've never led anyone to the Lord. Look, you don't want to go to heaven empty handed and maybe the approach you're taking is not the best approach and you need to rethink it through or, and it's not just an issue of, of learning a methodology. Ultimately it's an issue of obedience. They had no evangelism courses in the first century. They had no booklets that they passed out or shared with people but they gossiped the gospel and they went about telling people about the death, burial and resurrection and, and uh, God used their unashamed, bold witness. But most churches today don't have any kind of outreach when it comes to the loss. They don't even think about that. And they're just, uh, they've just blown it off. And unfortunately that reflects a lot of Christians in our nation. And we wonder why America continues to drift from God because there's less and less born again Christians. Uh, less and less people who know Christ is their savior. And you give that enough time, then all the salt and all the light is removed from a nation and it ultimately brings real darkness. And that's, that's the direction we're going in. And I think there are some theological reasons for it because we do know that at the end of the age, there's not going to be a revival in the church age. You know, people pray for revival and you should pray for revival. I pray for revival, but just know biblically speaking there's not going to be a great revival at the very end. Most people's love is going to grow cold. Sin is going to increase. Now there'll be the greatest influx of born again believers, maybe in the history since Christ ascended into heaven during the tribulation period. Uh, and we just studied that in revelation seven with 144,000 Jews who are the Billy Graham, so to speak of their day and people from every tribe, nation and tongue are converted and one to Jesus. It's an incredible number like the sands of the seashore that no one can count. But um, there's going to be a hardness of heart. And I, I think we're, I really believe with all my heart, we're, we're seeing it. We're, we're seeing lived out what the scriptures wrote about and people can laugh at me and say, that's crazy. But I'm telling you, God is at work and he's working in Israel and he is he is lining up the chess pieces uh, for the return of his son from heaven. Well, another hour has gone and we're glad you're able to join us. And these are posted usually later in the day at searchthescriptures.org, also at our radio website, WAGP.net. And they're downloadable for people to listen to later on. Thanks for being with us today. Hope you have a great day.